Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today we're going to have Jason Oaks back on the podcast. This is going to be part two. Uh, we're talking to Jason Oaks. Again, his website, peoplethefreegift.com. Uh, once you get to his website, you can also find links to uh, his YouTube channel where he has got a, a ton of really good uh, video teachings that you can apprise yourself of there. And uh, yeah, but today we're talking to Jason Oaks again about his seminar series, Reaching Out to Your Mormon Neighbor. Uh, awesome series. Very good, in fact. You can also find that on his website if you click on Seminars. Uh, it is there, or I, I believe it's under Resources as well. Also, after all the regular content of this podcast, uh, there is a chunk of a conversation of the conversation I had with Jason Oaks before we hit the record button, uh, or, or rather before the podcast had officially started, and um, it was really good. And I think that there is uh, a lot of nuggets there that I think you guys are going to enjoy. It wasn't intended to be part of the interview tonight, but the conversation was so good and I had the record button already pressed when I first uh, called him on Skype that I, I asked Jason, hey, you mind if I put this on at the end of the podcast? He was happy with that. So yeah, at the end of the podcast, check that out. There's there's still an extra probably yeah, five minute conversation or so that we had that I think is like I said, it's just filled with some good stuff there that I think you're going to enjoy. So anyway, Jason Oaks, welcome back to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited. So since the last time we spoke, you know, we recorded part one, friends, last week. Uh, when you're hearing this, this is actually probably a month old, but uh, we recorded it. Then I went to a pastor's slash leaders conference in Tucson, Arizona, and got all charged up for the Lord. On the way out, I was reading a book um, by Ron Rhodes. Uh, Ron Rhodes has agreed to come onto the podcast. Woohoo! Excited about that. And so I'm reading a book, getting prepared, and it's about witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, here I am reading about this, and I'm getting all charged up because he's got lots of great uh, uh, um, insights. Then I go to this conference, get really charged up for the Lord, and then on the way back, I get on the airplane. I'm late. Uh, I had been looking all over the airport for one of the elders of the church. He lost his sunglasses. So I'm looking all over the place. I can't find his sunglasses. Then I realize I'm going to miss my plane. I get on the plane. It's a Southwest airline. There's only a few seats left, and only one of them is an aisle seat. And I hate the seats in the middle and by the window. I hate being scrunched in. So there's this one seat left. And I'm praising God. And I sit down next to this guy, and within about two minutes, I discover he is a bishop of a ward. In other words, in, in our Christian terms, he's a pastor of a Mormon church. I mean, mind blown. Instantly... I, I, I forget everything I know about Mormonism. I'm, I'm just going to confess it instantly. It's gone. Mind blank. Starting to shake. I'm realizing, wow, this is such an opportunity. I have to stop and pray. 
And then I just start talking to this guy and I'm asking him about his faith. I'm asking him about uh, how the hierarchy looks in the, in the Mormon church, even though I've studied quite a bit about it. I'm just trying to prime the pump. I'm trying to get him to talk and I, and I want him to realize that I'm, I want to listen to him. I want to get to know him and pretty soon in there it happens and the door's wide open. I give him the full gospel. Um, I, I give him the whole gospel. I get an opportunity to, to, uh, share my testimony. I then share my wife's testimony. It was an amazing time that I actually got to spend with this guy in the plane. It was awesome. And all the while I'm thinking, I can't believe this is happening because I am going to be speaking with Jason Oaks in just a couple days and I'm going to be able to talk about this. So this guy's name is Tate. Uh, everybody, if you want to pray for him, please do. He gave me his phone number and email address. So I get to go back and talk to him again. So Jason, uh, all right. So I've got his email address. I've got his phone number. Um, and all my listeners out there, they know Mormons. They've got friends. They got family. They got coworkers. Uh, what type of suggestions would you have for me when I get back to him and others out there? Who would want to, you know, share their faith with Mormon friends? Well, uh, first of all, you know, when you mentioned uh, Ron Rhodes, I went over to my shelf and I pulled out reasoning from the scriptures with the Jehovah's Witnesses. That wouldn't happen mm. to be the book you're talking about, would it? No, it's not, actually. He's got a newer one. Okay. <laughs> um, the title is, oh, I'm going to botch this. It's something along the lines of uh, having conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. It is brand new. It is a brand new book. But yes, I did cut my teeth on uh, Watchtower Theology reading that book. That was the very first book I ever read on Watchtower Theology was Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. And then right after that, I had to get the one on Mormons. And then right after that, I got the one on Roman Catholicism. And then after that, the one on uh, Islam. All four of those books are like essentials that you should have in your library. They really are. We yeah, love those books. Definitely. And, and I, I had very much the same kind of uh, experience with that. And, you know, uh, some of my early studying of the, the Mormon church as well was upon uh, that series that was put out, you know, the reasoning from the scriptures books. And so I just uh, I thought that was interesting. I'm looking forward to that podcast and hearing that more from him. But in reference to reaching out to uh, your Mormon friends, here are some uh, thoughts that I, I just kind of uh, I would put out there. First of all, don't put words in their mouth or beliefs in their hearts. And what I mean by that is you can read all these great resources that are out there by the Tanners or Bill McKeever in Mormonism Research Ministry or, you know, Ron Rhodes or somebody else who might have written all these great things um, teaching you about what uh, past LDS prophets have said or maybe even stuff that's out of the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, their own scriptures. But really what it comes down to is it's so vitally important, no matter who it is that you're talking to, that you find out what they believe and how they interpret words and how they understand their different theological concepts, um, how, how they experience um, their, their church services. All of those different things are, are vitally important, and you don't want to find yourself having an argument or discussion with uh, somebody that's completely irrelevant. Um, you know, you don't want to be talking to them about something that Brigham Young said that they don't personally believe, or even, for that matter, Thomas Monson in something that he said in a local, uh, in a, 
general conference. So that's probably the most important thing. Um, then always make them define their terms and give you their understanding of the text. Uh, it's very easy when you're witnessing, especially you got your adrenaline going, you got the you know spirit moving, all that kind of stuff. It's very easy to just kind of start finding yourself doing all the talking and you know just expecting them to listen. And really, what you want is engagement. You're wanting the 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 gears to start turning in their head. You want them to be able to start articulating what it is that they what they believe and keep on asking those questions to get them to keep on trying to explain how that works and connect the dots. And what I find is a lot of times they find themselves in a place where all of a sudden they can't find the words to articulate what it is that they believe or how that verse that, you know, you just showed them fits into their their frame of view or they find themselves all of a sudden going from things that they've heard said and they're just kind of repeating them to all of a sudden they, they find themselves having to rely on their own understanding and it's not quite the same. So that's sure. number two. Uh, third is avoid the rabbit trails, which I, I know you and I uh, both have to uh, <laughs> listen to. And, uh, and so what I mean by that is keep dragging them back to Jesus back to grace, back to the gospel. It's so easy. Um, there's so many things, uh, topics that, you know, as Christians, they're just foreign to us, and we get into these groups and studying them, and we just almost want to talk to an LDS person just to get their perspective on these things. And it's so easy to do that. And when you're in conversations with people in these groups, if they start feeling uncomfortable about talking about grace and Jesus and these things, they're going to start bringing these things up. And they're going to try and drag the conversation off in a different area. And you need to be able to just gracefully and politely continue to bring the conversation back into the essentials. Because um, really, if you talk to them about all these other things, and even if they lose faith in the Mormon Church or you know the Watchtower Society or whatever group it is, even if they lose faith in that, you want them to still have a faith in Jesus. Even if they lose faith in their scriptures, you want them to still have a confidence in the Bible. You want them to be able to fall on Jesus you know, and so that he can smooth them out and form them and get them into a right relationship with him rather than just send them off into atheism or agnosticism, which so often happens. And uh, then love, love, love. Love is absolutely the most important thing. Um, The motive in which we find ourselves going out and reaching out to them, if we find that in our heart when we examine ourselves that it's bitterness, um, if we find that in our hearts it's so that we can be glorified somehow, um, or just the motive of I I just want to prove them wrong, um, that we, we need to just pull ourselves back and say, no, I'm not ready for this, and go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you, here's, honestly, I'm going to confess, here's where I'm at, but I know that this is not what you want from me, and I know you want me to reach out to them, and so would you just please um, conform my desires to yours and my motives to yours? And then, above all, listen to the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and, you know, Michael and I, uh, we were just talking before the conversation uh, started, uh, the recording started, about a recent conversation I had with a friend. And uh, he told me that he had been studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses and um, was thinking about getting baptized. And everything in me, in the flesh, was screaming, I need to just, you know, uh, tell this person everything I know that's going to stop him from doing this. But I felt the Holy Spirit saying, no, you're going to talk to him soon. Right now, I just want you to have lunch with him and reconnect and rebuild this relationship. And so it was hard uh, because there's that fear, I think, that creeps in. Um, but just listen to the Holy Spirit. And he's, if you rely upon him and you trust him and you just follow what he's telling you to do, you can't go wrong. You can't lose because you've done what he's called you to do. And that's all that he wants from us. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, yeah. Listen to what they have to say. Find out, find out everything about them, you know, get to know them, find out what their families, you know, what, what's their family like? Are they married? Are they not married? Do they have kids? What's, what are their kids' names and how old are they? You know, really genuinely take an interest in them and listen to, like you were saying, what they believe, find out exactly what they, they believe so that you're not, uh, should you do, uh, you know, should you actually launch into some arguments, you're not attacking a straw man. You know, you're not setting up something that they actually don't believe. It might be a true official Mormon doctrine, but they actually don't believe it. You want to specifically address something they brought up. <clears throat> and yeah, you want to leave them with um, perhaps some questions, questions that maybe they didn't adequately answer when you were talking to them. Basically, when they walk away, kind of like, what I mentioned in that series uh, where we talked about Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, you want to leave a stone in their shoe. You want to leave them with something to think about and um, really get them, you know, <laughs> thinking about it at night. They're laying up at night going, man, I, I really flopped on that one. Why is that question so hard to answer? Why do I believe that anyway? And uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit is in there badgering them, uh, you know, pointing out these holes. Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking of an example of this. An example would be if you're talking to an LDS person and you're wanting to talk to them about grace, but you start taking the approach of verses in the Book of Mormon that talk about, you know, you have to completely repent and do away with all of your sins before grace can apply to you. And um, sometimes I, I think that Christians almost want to, you know, the, the LDS person will be telling them, no, I don't actually see it that way. I actually, you know, in their view, is actually much closer to grace in, in terms of biblical grace. And sometimes Christians almost want to push them back into the LDS version of grace so that they can talk them out <laughs> of it later. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, that's just an example that I've kind of seen in the past of um, things that could be along those lines. Exactly. So... Oh, so I've had so many Mormons in my living room, you know, um, I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, and uh, Jason, if this has been your experience, please let me know, but I heard from a, I, who knows, I was listening to some podcast, and somebody made the statement that if you ever want to have Mormons delivered to your front door, <laughs> go to one of the Moroni uh, bookstores and purchase something, doesn't matter how cheap it is, 
uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I went ahead and got a triple combination, the uh, Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and also the Pearl of Great Price. And they ask you if you're on, your, on their email list, and you say no. And then they take your email uh, address. They also find out your home address, and they'll cross-reference that with their, with their church listing, I think. Next thing you know, you have a Mormon on your do- doorstep within the next two weeks. And I thought that was kind of silly, and I thought, well, I'm going to test that. Sure enough, coincidence or not, it did work. And I had Mormons at my house. And that was a neat time. Um, I think I've been blacklisted <laughs> for, about a, for about a year and a half there. We would have Mormons over every single week. And we'd bring them in. We'd serve them uh, you know, cookies or brownies. Uh, don't serve them anything like uh, coffee or Coke, but, uh, <laughs> you know, avoid these things that are offensive to them. But we'd give them orange juice or whatever. You know, we'd just have a good time of fellowship. We'd talk to them for a little while, and then we would get into doctrine. And I was able to show a few um, a few of them the, uh, uh, the Book of Mormon versus the Bible video. You've, I'm sure you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's out there. I got to show them that. We, we got to do a lot of things together. It was a really good time. But anyway, all that to say, every last one of them that came over would challenge me to read the Book of Mormon and pray about it. And th- they would uh, take a scripture from James and say, you know, if you ask God for wis- wisdom, he'll show you. Uh, I just completely paraphrased and botched that. But um, they would challenge you to read the Book of Mormon and pray about it, and God would confirm its veracity, its truth to you. Uh, how do you even deal with that challenge? Like, w- what do you do there? Well, you know, I, I dealt with that same kind of frustration that you, you probably, you know, feel in that it's a very awkward moment because in a sense, you want to show them that you're willing to hear out what they have to say. Um, you're yeah. willing to be open to their worldview because y- you want them to be open to yours. Uh, you want the discussion to be ongoing. So um, I-, I felt that tension for a really long time, and I've, I've heard different people deal with this in different ways. Um, but the verse that you're alluding to comes from the Book of Mormon, and it's in Moroni chapter 10, verse 4. And oftentimes the missionaries will, you know, turn to there and then they'll put it in front of you, have you read it, and then challenge you uh, and leave you with that Book of Mormon with some highlighted, you know, sections or, you know, a bookmark in there and like, hey, read this and then um, pray about it and do what this says. So here's what the verse says. It says, and when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and, uh, you know, oftentimes they misquote this and they say, ask him if it's true. And that's not actually what it says. And so here's your first doubt if you're a Christian. It says, ask if these things are not true. And so any Christian who would pray and ask God if these things are not true would come back with the answer, uh, no, they're not true. <laughs> and so you can take that out. And so it goes on, and if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And that power of the Holy Ghost um, is explained in other places as you're supposed to have this warm feeling that it's called a burning in your bosom. And um, so you're supposed to have this feeling, and if you have that feeling, that's the Holy Ghost testifying to you that is true. 
and everything from that point on um, is supposed to just, you know, fall into place. It's all valid. You know, Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, that the Church is uh, the one true Church, that's the restored Church, that Thomas Monson now that validates him as the current prophet, the Book of Mormon's true, uh, all of these things. And so Christians really need to realize this is really what they're up against, is... uh, the Mormon that they're talking to, more than likely, now not always, sometimes they haven't really genuinely had this experience, and they just kind of maybe tell people that they have. And so, again, know who you're talking to. But for most of them, they've had this experience, and for them, this absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what you say to them, means that it's true. And so, how do I deal with this? And the first, what I felt like the Lord leading me to is to take a totally different approach. And so now the approach when uh, an LDS person or particularly a missionary will challenge you with this, what I suggest is kind of turn it back on them for a second and ask them, well, I'm curious, you know, have you had this experience? Um, Do you have a testimony of the Book of Mormon? And, uh, of course, they'll say, yes. And you go, oh, well, tell me about it. You know, how that happened for you? And so get them to share their testimony in the Book of Mormon and maybe some experiences that went along with it and then clarify for them. So would you say that you believe that the Book of Mormon is, you know, inspired by God and everything in it is true? And, you know, like Joseph Smith even used his words, do you believe, like Joseph Smith said, that this is the most correct book on the face of the earth and that it will get you closer to God than reading any other book? And they'll say, yeah, of course. And so then you can say, well, you know, I've actually, I have read some of it. And I'll just tell you briefly my story. I had a friend who gave me a Book of Mormon um, when I was in high school. And she uh, highlighted a bunch of different portions. She wrote this really nice letter uh, to me in the beginning of it. And um, I, I took her up on a challenge, and I, I started reading it. And this is when I was just kind of starting to get back into church and in my faith and get committed. And so um, I read First Nephi. I read the testimonies of the witnesses. I read Joseph Smith's um, story of how he got the first vision experience, and then I read this verse about praying about the Book of Mormon, and I actually did pray about it. And I sat there in my bedroom, and I asked God with sincerity, you know, is this true? And I'll never forget the answer that I got. Uh, The answer that I got was, why are you reading this? You haven't even read the Bible all the way through. Put this down. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I'm not making that up. It's not. Um, and so I did pick up the Bible. I started reading it. And then through the course of the events, you know, and solidifying my faith and then reaching out to my LDS friends, then God started pulling me back in. And then, so I, you know, I've picked up the Book of Mormon since then. And um, so that's my experience. And so everybody... Uh, which just kind of proves that the whole subjective experience, trust in your feelings thing, really, it is invalid. And you can't back that up with scripture. But here's how I take it a step further. And so I call this, you know, the Book of Mormon, um, you know, challenge, so to speak, um, that I put back on them. 
if they have testified to you that they have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, that they had the burning of the bosom, and that they say, I, I believe everything in it is true. What most Christians don't realize is that the Book of Mormon uh, more accurately reflects 19th century American Christianity and what was going on at that time than it does current LDS doctrine. And in fact, even doctrines that Joseph Smith would come out later in uh, his Doctrine and Covenants. And for those who are interested, I just posted on my uh, Facebook page, uh, the People of the Free Gift Facebook page, um, a video by Grant Palmer, who was a former professor at BYU. He was one of the church historians. And he gives this awesome talk about how Joseph Smith's theology changed in regards to God over time. And he even has a section in there of, of something else that I was listening to by him the other day where he actually shows you how the Book of Mormon came to be. The actual sources that Joseph Smith was literally drawing from and copying from, uh, and he worked his way through the entire Book of Mormon. It was amazing. Oh. And um, so, uh, so the verses that I would point them to, and uh, I, I then take some verses, and I think, Michael, you wanted to get into this a little bit deeper later, but um, the, there's verses in the Book of Mormon that talk about the Trinity, that talk about salvation coming completely through Christ. They talk about there being only one God. Uh, there's all sorts of areas that, that there's no chance for salvation after death. Um, all sorts of different areas. And so I take them through those verses, and each time I'm asking them, hey, could you tell me how you understand this verse? And then challenging them, you know, well, do you believe that God has been God from all eternity to all eternity? And all of these different um, things. Uh, let's let's look at the, uh, some of those. Um, we might as well. We can skip forward, and then we can come back and look at some of these other questions I want to ask later. Okay. Um, like, yeah, um, um, what about was God a God from all eternity? All right. So... That is Moroni 8.18, okay, among some other verses. Uh, it's not the only one with any of these things. And so let me, uh, there we go. All right, so Moroni 8.18 says, For I know that God is not a partial God, neither a changeable being, but that he is unchangeable from all eternity to all eternity. And so the, the way, just for the Christians who are maybe aren't familiar, the way that this uh, contradicts LDS theology is that uh, Joseph Smith, actually, he directly contradicted this verse in the Book of Mormon in something called the King Follett Discourse, which was uh, a funeral sermon that he gave for a man named King Follett. It wasn't like a real king or anything. Um, but he gave this shortly before he actually um, was killed. And... He says, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea, and I will take away the veil. And that is the sermon where later on he talks about how I will show you, and he claims from the Bible, um, 
how God came to be God and how you um, are intended to become gods. And so that's really uh, at the point where his theology had progressed. But this verse says that God has been a God from all eternity to all eternity. And that's just simply not true in LDS theology. They believe that God was once a man, just like us, that in his obedience to the LDS gospel on his planet and his submission to his heavenly Father that went before him and he worshipped and still does, that he progressed and he became a God. And so um, this claims all eternity backwards and then all eternity Forwards, and that's just simply not true. Um, they wouldn't say that that's true for any uh, gods that they claim that would be out there, in, in fact. And so that, that's one verse that you can talk, take them to that has to do with the nature of God. Interesting. Okay. Well, okay. Also, I have heard that there are plain and precious truths missing from the Bible. Um, what does the Book of Mormon say about this? Okay, uh, so in Second Nephi 9.16, uh, here is what it says. And assuredly, as the Lord liveth, for the Lord God has spoken it, and it is his eternal word, which cannot pass away, that they who are righteous shall be righteous still, and they who are filthy shall be filthy still. Wherefore, they who are filthy are the devil and his angels, and they shall go away into everlasting fire, prepared for them, and their torment is as a lake of fire and brimstone, which, uh, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever and hath no end. So this verse actually is kind of a double-pronged thing. You can talk to them about hell, which they don't believe in, and you can also talk to them about what does it mean when it says, if the Lord God has spoken it, it's his eternal word, which cannot pass away. Uh, because what they teach is that there was a complete apostasy of the church. Um, shortly after the death of the apostles, and definitely by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And what the Book of Mormon, the way that it puts it, is that there were plain and precious truths that had been removed for, by malicious scribes, so it says, from the scriptures, and these truths are supposed to be truths that relate to, you know, priesthood authority, um, temple ordinances, um, all of the things, if you think about it, that make the, the Mormon church unique from the typical Christian church in terms of their core theology. Those are the plain and precious truths that are supposed to be actually, they're technically supposed to be restored in the Book of Mormon. But you don't actually find the Book of Mormon talking about hardly any of that stuff. It doesn't talk about us becoming gods. It doesn't talk about there being multiple gods. It doesn't talk about, you know, temple ordinances and, you know, baptism for the dead. It doesn't talk about any of these things that they would uh, claim are absolutely essentials if you're going to be the one true church. Right, right. You know, and... They're saying that these plain and precious truths were removed from the Bible. They're also claiming that there was this great big uh, falling away from the truth that happened shortly after the death of the apostles. But then we have scriptures where uh, Jesus himself says to Peter, uh, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Did Jesus make a mistake here, or uh, are they just simply wrong? Right, and in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Jesus also repeated what the Book of Mormon said. He said that my words will not ever pass away. And the Mormon Church, in the apostasy, in, in claiming the plain and precious truths things, are literally claiming that the words of Jesus had passed away for a huge, huge section of time. We're talking at least 1,500 years here of time in which God just stood back, his true church had disappeared off the face of the earth, the church that his son started, died, gave his own life for, rose from the dead for, and gave the apostles the scriptures, you know, to, to, to start. That church and his words had passed away, according to the LDS theology. So that creates a problem, because when you put it in the mouth of Jesus, either Jesus is a liar, or he was just wrong, in which that makes him a false prophet. And um, so that, that puts him in one of those situations which I kind of just like to leave them in. I don't want to keep on just pressing to make them, like, you know, give an altar call right on the spot um, kind of thing. But that's the point where you want to almost leave it with them. You want to yeah. leave them with that tension in which they realize, wow, I have to choose between either what Jesus said or what my church has said. That's a real right. problem. That is a real problem. And I'm sure that if any of us as Christians, if we're honest, if we found ourselves in that situation, that would be a huge problem for us. Right, right. If you, and if we, if we frame that as a question yes. uh, or a series of questions to where they actually have to answer for what is being taught here by the yes. LDS faith, Mm -hmm. um, that's where exactly what you're saying, you leave them stuck with that burden. They're stuck with that. And that's going to be the thing that keeps them up at night thinking about, okay, wow, I really didn't have a good answer for that guy. You know, that this really bugs me. There's something wrong here. Right. Um, and the same conflict um, can be created. And that's some, some of the direction we're going here in this book, using the Book of Mormon. Now, obviously, you ultimately want to get them to talking about the Bible, talking about Jesus, talking about grace, but if you find yourself in that conversation in relation to praying about the Book of Mormon, you can use the Book of Mormon to show that their theology and what they're being taught at General Conference and what they're taught even in Doctrine and Covenants and their other scriptures is not in agreement with what the Book of Mormon and what Joseph Smith's restored Christianity um, and restored gospel originally taught. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, and so they're saying that some corrupt scribes took away from the Bible, that actually they, they modified, they changed, and many of these plain and precious truths are missing from the scriptures, yet their Book of Mormon is agreeing with the scriptures in so many ways. Um, in fact, like, for example, the gospel. Tell me about what the Book of Mormon says concerning the gospel and how that's changed over the years. Okay. Um, well, the Book of Mormon, 
actually has a couple of different, you know, paths that it takes in, re- in, in reference to the gospel and our response that's required to us. And so you can show them that the contradiction that's there because some people have dubbed it the impossible gospel. And uh, what they mean by that is that the standards that are actually put forward by the LDS Church, and it, to a large extent, it's in the, it is in the Book of Mormon still, um, is a very works theology based, and that whole idea, like we talked about before, of complete repentance and all the stuff they have to do in the temple and all of the obligations that they have in regards to family, and even the fact that you have to technically be married and sealed in an LDS temple to your family in order to attain to the highest level of heaven. That's a rather unique thing to the LDS church. Um, you know, that, that's very different than uh, the ordinary Christian church. But, so you have verses like Moroni 1032 that, you know, go down that road, but then you have verses like this. And um, in Moroni chapter 6, verse 4, so this is even more interesting because it's the same book in their Book of Mormon. And so here's what he says here. And after they had been received unto baptism and were brought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names taken, that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful in prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. Now, that, that is a completely different thing than what it says in Moroni 10.32, where it says, Be perfected unto Christ, and deny yourself of all ungodliness, and when you have completely repented of your sins, then is the grace of God sufficient for you. Those are completely different mm-hmm. tactics. But Moroni 6.4, even if you just wanted to take them here and forget about the other thing, just get them. What does it mean to rely alone upon the merits of Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith? Right, right. Get them thinking about that because yeah, that that you, when you read Moroni six four, you almost want to follow that with an amen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. When I was on the plane next to uh, Tate, I, I brought up Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, mm. uh, that by grace we're saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. And, um, you know, I was reading that. I, I would like to think that he was kind of cringing a little bit that, you know, hey, that doesn't quite fit with our theology. Mm. Um, hmm. So... Go I'm kind of curious, what did he say in relation to Ephesians? You know, he agreed with me. He agreed with me. He said, yeah, it's, it's by grace through faith. And that's when I had to, um, and there was a long, awkward pause before he said that. It's almost like he had to consider it for a while. Uh, then he agreed with me, and then I brought up, um, well, in your DVD series, in fact, this is probably a good time to launch into that for just a minute or two, but, oh, wait, the first part we talked about this, the different uh, um, um, things that, uh, that a Mormon has to fulfill in order to be exalted, and uh, we talked about that plan of salvation for a little while. Um, yeah. I, I didn't let on that I was 
you know, into this type of stuff. You know, he asked me if I knew anything about Mormonism and my response was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> you know, you know, I don't want to let on that, that I've read a few books about it. Of course, truthfully, just like you were saying earlier, the more I learn, it seems like the less I know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a few moments when he was shocked, like, what, where did you hear about that? Uh, but uh, anyway, where were we? We kind of got lost there. Yeah, there, there's many steps that need to be completed, many different uh, um, um, oh, uh, works that a Mormon has to work in order to gain exaltation. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, a couple of things that need to be said here is that uh, for the Christians, they need to realize that the context of Mormonism coming out um, was the Second Great Awakening. And um, at that time, there was this whole idea that was floating around, and it was actually started by the, uh, the Campbell Stone movement that became the Christian churches, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and even later uh, branched off into a group of the International Churches of Christ, which, um, you know, that's a whole different topic. But, oh, yeah. And uh, so what, what you need to understand, and even if you go to many of these churches, these Christian denominational churches, um, baptism is taught by many of them as absolutely essential to salvation, um, and that that idea and the restoration that the church needed to be restored because it had gone so haywire and off track, um, that was taught and established um, before Joseph Smith came on the scene. And so um, he just kind of piggybacked on that. And in fact, uh, Smith's family was actually very religious, and his family, for a couple of generations, you can track this down, had believed and even told Joseph that he would be the vehicle by which God would restore the church. And so then he kind of took that and combined it with this curiosity about these Indian mounds that had been left behind, Native American mounds, and people's curiosity about where the Native Americans came from. There was a book that came out by Ethan Smith, who was the pastor of one of the future members of the LDS Church, um, who came out with a book called View of the Hebrews. His name is Ethan Smith. You can get that at least uh, for sure through uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, and I have a copy. Um, and there was the view that was going around at that time that the Native Americans were descendants of ancient Israelites who came over to the Americas, and that's where these things came from. Um, you also have Sidney Ridden, who was um, a pastor within the Campbellstone movement, and he was preaching in a church in Kirtland, Ohio, and when Joseph Smith's movement wasn't gaining ground in upstate New York, uh, Sidney Rigdon said, hey, why don't you guys come down here? And guess what? I've converted my entire church to the LDS way, and, um, which is scary. But uh, he had converted his entire church, and he was very instrumental in terms of the, um, the LDS movement getting off the ground, and some would even insist that he was uh, a large amount of the source in regards to the Book of Mormon and the whole writing of that. Oh, wow. Now, 
<clears throat> this is this is some new information. I remember uh, uh, speaking about. Um, oh man, the, the name of that writing again, uh, View of the Hebrews? Yes. I remember speaking about that in a, in a past pro, uh, podcast quite a ways back. And um, yeah, a lot of this I've heard, but I have not heard about um, his involvement in getting that kicked off. That, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of one of the providences of God that uh, I was planning to go to Biola uh, university to go to the seminary. I know that's where my youth pastor had gone and that's where I wanted to go. But, uh, the Lord had me start uh, my college experience down at Fullerton College, which was a community college, and right down the street was Hope International University, which, um, I went in and found out I could go there for half of the cost, you know, so why not, right? And so I went there, and that is a, tr- uh, a school that is um, tied in with the Christian Church, uh, Church of Christ movement. And so I learned all of these things about uh, the Restoration Movement and their theology, and I found myself disagreeing with a whole lot of stuff there. Um, but it was the providence of God, because all the while I was getting this context and these connection points that would help me as I, I you know, reached out and gained this heart to reach out to LDS people. Wow, interesting. We we might have to talk a little bit about that someday. Okay. Get real in depth about that. But yeah, interesting. So, okay, what about what does the Book of Mormon say about the Trinity? Trinity. Trinity um in 2nd Nephi 31:21. It says this, and now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way and there is none other way nor name given under the he- under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. Hmm. We don't even have verses in the Bible that are there. <laughs> I mean, you can... <laughs> I mean, First John five. Um, there's that you know debated text, which I know you've addressed in previous podcasts. But um, this and there, this is not the only one. Uh, there's you know verses where I know it even says, "Which are one eternal God." And so the Trinity, um, in terms of uh, Joseph Smith's uh, worldview and his view of God, it developed most definitely over time. And what you see in the Book of Mormon is uh, very much in line with Christian doctrine. There's some verses that also kind of go back and forth between here you got the Trinity, and then in other verses it kind of teaches modalism, that sure. you know, God literally became the Son, um, and that he was called the Son of God because you know, he was a human here on this earth, and that kind of thing. Um, so you got that, and which why there's contradictions within the same source material. And it's like we showed earlier, even from the same prophet um, in some cases, that, that's just not something you find in the Bible. Um, the Bible, you have 66 books by 40 authors written over thousands of years. They lived in di- different geographical places. They lived, uh, they wrote in three different languages. They had different professions. They wrote in different literary genres under different rules of different empires and dealt with different issues, but they never, ever, ever once disagree on anything. 
which I, I think is amazing because, you know, we can't hardly get five people together in, in the same room and get them to agree about the, the key topics of our day. So um, that is just not the case with the Mormon scriptures. There are contradictions all over the place. And, you know, it, it's once again, they're all just things that over time, as you're having these conversations, and you get them to think about them, you get them to even admit them, articulate them, then they will find themselves in a conundrum and having to make a choice. Well, is that really okay? Do I really believe that that's consistent with the claim that this came from God, to have these contradictions that are very so very apparent? Right. And there, I mean, they are everywhere. There's contradictions between uh, various writings in the Book of Mormon, and then there's contradictions with their later writings that you would find in, in Doctrines and Covenants. Then you have contradictions between those two collections of writings and the Bible. I mean, it's just a big mess. And, and I think really I, I really think that that's a product, and it kind of just shows the evolution of the thought and the fact that Joseph Smith as I, I kind of believe he started off maybe with, um, you know, okay motives. Um, and I think, though, he was involved in some very dark stuff. And, you know, for example, you know, the night that Moroni apparently appeared to him at his bedside, it was, you know, at the autumn equinox. And it was the point in which all the people from Joseph's, you know, magic worldview believed that the heavens would kind of open up a gateway and all these heavenly messengers, they could communicate with them. Um, oh, wow. So, so there's things that um, are definitely there, but you have this progressive worldview in which um, over time, Joseph kind of, well, he definitely changes his mind about things, and he progresses in them, but then he has to take that new definition and place it onto the old stuff. And so that's the problem. I, I'll give you an example of this. In Alma 34, in the Book of Mormon, it says this, in verses 33 through 35, And now, as I said unto you before, and as you have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. You cannot say, when you were brought to that awful crisis, that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, you cannot say that, for that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. For behold... If you have procrastinated the day of your repentance, even until death, behold, you have become subjected to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his. Therefore, the spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you, and hath no place in you, and the devil hath all power over you. And this is the final state of the wicked. Now, that is very definite. That is very final. And you, you can't... Um, you can't really wiggle yourself around very much in that, that this life is the time for you to get ready and prepare to meet God. Now, if you have a 19th century American Christianity context to that, that, that isn't as intense as, you know, the idea that, you know, now I have to completely repent of all of my sins and get ready 
to meet God and to be ready. To, am I going to go to the celestial kingdom? Am I confident of that right now? And so that's an example of what I'm talking about. Well, that's interesting. And so they in this passage in Alma, what, what was that again? 30, 34 verses 33 through 35? Or? Yes, yes. Okay. And so in that passage, this life, this is when you repent. You don't get any other chances. But then we hear from, uh, you know, part one of this, this podcast where you're talking about the plan of salvation and there is this ladder where uh, people are, are still hearing this uh, gospel according to LDS faith uh, and they have a chance to yet repent and believe in that gospel. Yes, definitely. And, that, you know, if you talk to any LDS person, pretty much, none of them would say, you know, this life is it. And, in fact, the whole, you know, baptism for the dead, all of that stuff really just points to their belief that, you know, you have a second chance after death. You have a second chance after death. You can, you know, have ordinances performed on your behalf by those who are living and even, you know, their view of the millennial kingdom is basically that, you know, names are just going to be scrolling down and next to them, you know, yes, this work has been performed. No, this work is not, you know. So they're going to, that's where they believe that all of that, you know, lost time and all of it to make sure that it's kind of a, we get everybody um, and give them a chance kind of thing. So uh, it's definitely a different viewpoint than what you see presented there in the Book of Mormon so clearly. Hmm. So uh, what does the Book of Mormon say as far as like, doesn't the Book of Mormon also agree that God the Father is a spirit and is not flesh and bones? Yeah, in Mosiah uh, chapter 7, verse 27, it says this, And because he said unto them that Christ was the God, the Father of all things, and said that he should take upon him the image of man, and it should be the image after which man was created in the beginning. Or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God and that God should come down among the children of men and take upon him flesh and blood and go forth upon the face of the earth. Um, so, you know, in the, in the LDS theology, you have this idea, and I believe it's, you know, section 130, verse 22, a doctrine and covenant, somewhere around there, um, it says, you know, God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. And that is their view of God the Father. That's their view of Jesus, um, that they believe they're completely separate personages and that Jesus is, you know, he's less than the Father. He's not the God that we're supposed to worship. Um, he is a God. He has progressed to be a God, but he's not our God. And that our God has a body of flesh and bones. But this verse talks about how, you know, in order to come down to this life and fulfill his role as Savior, Jesus had to take on a body of flesh and bones. And then it even qualifies it with, you know, the image of God that um, was created in the beginning. And so, you know, there might be some wiggle room uh, in terms of they may come back and say, well, that's Jesus, and he, he hadn't had a body yet because he was, you know, a pre-existent spirit. But that leads into some other areas, you know, like, well, why would he have been God before he came to this life? 
because, you know, this life and fulfilling and proving ourselves worthy is, you know, all a part of progressing to become a God. Um, but, you know, that, that's a verse that you can kind of take them to, just to get the discussion going on that. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> right. And, okay. One more. I got to ask you about this. The, the Book of Mormon <laughs> says that it has a familiar spirit. Now, I just got done. Well, actually, I'm not done. I still have one more part to record on a series about the New Age. Um, having a familiar spirit. I'm very familiar <laughs> with familiar spirits, and that is not a good thing. Uh, what's up with that? All right. Um, so this is a, this is something I stumbled upon when I had some Mormon missionaries that were coming over to my house and um, years ago, and they showed me a verse in Isaiah chapter 29. And in Isaiah chapter 29, and this passage is quoted in their Book of Mormon, and they believe it is a prophecy. In fact, it's included in Second Nephi chapter 26. And it's claimed there. This is a prophecy of the Book of Mormon, and it was fulfilled now. Um, and so in Isaiah chapter 29, it talks about this book that's going to rise up from the dust. And it's going to, it says, one of the things about it is it says that it has a familiar spirit. And that caught my attention. And as soon as I read that, um, I, when I, you know, in between our meetings, I started looking up in the Bible in my concordance what it says about familiar spirits. And then, um, just so you guys know, your listeners can know, um, uh, if you go to LDS.org or Mormon.org, if you click on their scriptures tab, you can search through all of their scriptures, just like you would a concordance, just like, you know, blueletterbible.org or, you know, Bible Gateway or any of those other things. And so I did that too. And what I found was unanimously across the board, Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, all of it, it referred every single time to a familiar spirit in the way that you, Michael, would be familiar with. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that would be this. Um, and so, uh, the dic even dictionary.com says familiar spirit, a supernatural spirit or demon supposed to attend on or serve a person. Or gotquestions.com, the word familiar is from the Latin familiaris, meaning a household servant and is intended to express the idea that sorcerers have spirits as their servants ready to obey their commands. Those attempting to contact the dead, even to this day, usually have some sort of spirit guide who communicates with them. These are familiar spirits. Okay, so not a whole lot of wiggle room in terms of the sources you could go to in terms of definitions of uh, familiar spirits. But what you find, um, even in Second Nephi 18, it says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for their living to hear from the dead, to the law and to the testimony, whatever that means. And if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so, of course, you've got all the verses in Leviticus and, you know, talking about if anybody has a familiar spirit, kill them. Um, basically, I, it's a paraphrase. <laughs> um, 
get get as far away as you possibly can from them. They are leading you astray that has to do with sorcery, has to do with witchcraft, has to do with divination. It has to do with all of these things, which are very, very real things because you are tapping into the dark side, so to speak. Um, you are getting in contact with demons. You're getting in contact with Satan. You're opening yourself up to something that is not good at all. And so before you show them all of those things, here's what I suggest. You ask them, do you believe that this, it, when, you, when they're showing you Isaiah, okay, uh, do you believe this is talking about the Book of Mormon? And of course they do. Do you believe this is a fulfilled prophecy? Yes, they do. What significance does this verse have for you? This is where you make it personal, okay? Does this verse say that the Book of Mormon has a familiar spirit? And, I mean, yes, it does. What do you think that means? And this is where, you, and here's the answer that I've, I've heard from them, is if you read the book, if you read the Bible, and you read the Book of Mormon, it sounds very familiar, right? I mean, and there's a reason for that, because it was, you know, plagiarizing a good portion of the book of the Bible, the King James Bible, to be exact, um, and there's huge, huge portions that are just lifted right out, uh, errors and all, uh, in fact. But so they would say it has a very familiar ring to it. And, and indeed it does. I mean, the Book of Mormon, if you were to read it, it, it reads very much like uh, the King James Version of the Bible. Now, to a Christian who is very in tune with the Holy Spirit, when they read the Bible, it gives them a very different feeling than the Book of Mormon. And just yeah. even in style, um, literary-wise, um, the Bible is just so far superior. But I will give them credit. does sound, you know, similar to the Bible. Now, um, once they've said that and what they, they think it means, then you can show them the verses, like I talked about in Second Nephi. You can go to Leviticus. You can, you know, and just ask them every time, you know, what's this verse saying about familiar spirits? And then they start getting a very odd look on their face. Um, I remember that first group of missionaries, when I brought this to their attention, they, I, the look on his face was just one of just horror. He had, he had never heard about this. He had, this is the first time he'd ever seen this, and he had no answer for it. And he braced himself, I remember, and he kind of put a smile back on his face, and he re gave me that testimony of the Book of Mormon about Joseph Smith. And, oh. and um, but you can tell, you can tell, especially if you have, you know, a discerning, you know, spirit, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, um, you can tell when something just, it, it got through. You know, that barrier that they put up initially, it, it got through. And, you know, I don't know whatever happened, you know, to that missionary or any others, you know, since then, but that was a moment that I will never forget. And it, this is one of those things that um, it definitely, again, it puts them in a position where they have to explain why every single other solitary verse talking about familiar spirits in any of their scriptures talks about it as evil 
as something they need to get as far away from as possible. The person who practices it should be put to death. It's an abomination before the Lord. And yet, they believe the Book of Mormon, they just said. And you can follow it up by saying, do familiar spirits sound like a good thing? Do you still think the Book of Mormon has a familiar spirit? What does the Book of Mormon say about somebody who consults familiar spirits? And if the Book of Mormon does, does have a familiar spirit, what should you do? And that's the point. You know, you want to leave them with that question. Because you and I see the obvious conclusion of that. If the Book of Mormon indeed has a familiar spirit, and if indeed the Bible is, even if it is prophesying about the Book of Mormon, which is not, but even if it is, what does it say that the Mormon should do about the, if the Book of Mormon has a familiar spirit? And the answer is, put it to death. Uh, you know, the, those prophets that proclaimed this and brought it forth should be put to death. And you should mm. get as far away as you possibly can from it. And you want to leave them with that conclusion in their minds. You, you probably won't get them to say it. You probably won't get them to say it. But in their hearts, in their minds, you want them to say it. Because at that point, um, they are forced with a very real decision. And if you've been bringing out um, all of these things that put them in a decision between Jesus and their church, you know, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, or the Bible and Doctrine and Covenants, or isn't the Book of Mormon against itself in this case, and, you know, all of those things, they will add up. And you remember, it's not the words that we say. It's, it's God's word, and it's God's spirit, and he's doing the work, and we're just his vessels in order to be used by him. And if we're willing, he will use us. And if we're rejected, remember, it's not us who's being rejected. It's him. And right. so it's not a personal thing. It's not you failed if they don't convert. And, and the, the odds, I'm going to be quite honest with you, the odds that you happen to find yourself in the place where you you are praying with that Mormon, that Jehovah's Witness member, that, that other you know cult member, the odds that you're going to be in that moment, in that place, praying that prayer with them are quite low. I'm just going to be very honest. Most of this ministry is planting the seed, watering the seed, and somebody somewhere is going to be fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time when they're ready, when the Holy Spirit's just pounding them, that they're going to say, you know, I, I got to talk, you know, and, you know, praise God if you happen to find yourself in that position, but praise God if you're the one that's sitting next to the Mormon bishop on an airplane and just having a conversation and putting these thoughts in their head too. Right, right. In fact, in your in your DVD series, Reaching Out to Your Mormon Neighbor, uh, you even mentioned several things that, you know, several challenges to the LDS member as they're starting to consider leaving their church, the, the different obstacles that they're going to have to get through. Um, it, it It's pretty intense. I mean, it's not just a little quick decision to say, hey, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a very painful 
and uh, difficult decision to make. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it may not be as threatening as somebody who's coming out of Islam, but in the same way, uh, it is a culture. It's not just a religion, um, and it's, it's a little easier if you're not in Utah. If you are in Utah and you're an LDS person, then uh, they literally will pass out, you know, maps uh, from their wards of their neighborhood because all the wards, you know, they tell you where you're going to go to church and what time you're going to go to church and all that kind of stuff. And so you're going to church literally with your neighbors. And so if you become inactive, all of a sudden that map, the next time it's distributed, it's going to show, tell everybody in your ward that you're inactive, everybody in your neighborhood, your friends, your neighbors, your um you know, people your kids go to school with, they're going to know, and they're going to treat you differently. And if you've left the church, oh, man, that's even worse. I mean, mm. you may lose your social network, you may lose your job. And in fact, because marriage and family is essential for them to go into the celestial kingdom, I have heard this so many times that somebody who has come out, their, their spouse has stayed in, and their kids have stayed in, and the bishop will actually, over time, if you don't convert, you don't come back, they will advise for your spouse to divorce you and to help them find a a spouse who's going to be worthy enough to call their name on the last day and to get them into the celestial kingdom. And you know what, you know, Christians, a lot of times they, they criticize that and they say, well, that's horrible, you know, the church is crossing the boundary there. You know what, I don't really have that, that point of view on that. Because there's things in our theology as Christians that are countercultural. And if we truly believe that these things are true and they're from God, and they do, they really believe that families are forever and that this is the way that God's designed it to be. And they are acting in a way that's consistent with that. But it's just to show that there's a very real risk that these people are having to take. And the other thing I will say is this. The Mormon Church has answers that are very palatable to people who have lost a loved one who, was, who died, as far as they know, in a state of unbelief. Or maybe a child who, you know, who's died... Um, or, or things of that nature, that the Mormon Church has answers to these questions that a lot of times it just, at least on the surface, it appears that Christians don't have good answers to, or they, they don't have answers that give them as much hope as believing that everybody goes to heaven of some kind, and, you know, that um, you can even do work. If you become a member of the Church, you can do work, and you can ensure that you can be sealed to your child or that that loved one forever and ever in all eternity. And, you know, of course, as Christians, our view of heaven, we do believe that families are forever. We do believe that everyone in your family, every person that you know who believes in Jesus Christ, is going to be in heaven with you, and you're going to know them even as you're fully known. And so there's no distinction. And in fact, the likelihood that you're going to end up with the people that you love in the same place in the afterlife is, you know, drastically higher from a Christian standpoint because we believe that we all go to the same place. And in the Mormon worldview, it doesn't even cohesively fit together. 
And, you know, if you're led, you can lead them down this, this road as well. You know, they say families are forever. And they say you're sealed. You can be sealed as a family unit forever. But what happens if, you know, mom and dad may get to the celestial kingdom, but, you know, their son only qualifies for the terrestrial kingdom? Well, they're going right. to be, they're not going to be in the same place. Or what if, you know, uh, you know, their other child completely apostatizes from the faith? They're not going to be, regardless of the ceiling, they're not going to be in the same place. And then what about the fact that you guys believe that eventually you can progress to become your own, you know, gods? Oh. If you really follow that family is our forever thing to its logical conclusion, they give you this picture that almost sounds like, you know, we're going to be as a family unit. We're all going to be in the same place and, you know, we're going to just be together forever. But if we all become gods who are married to our, you know, spiritual spouses and then we give birth to our own spirit children, we're all going to be over our own places and, we're not going to be in the same place forever. And so it, it really, the picture that they paint, you know, when you go into, maybe you visit a temple and you go through the visitor center or those types of things, the picture that they paint, it doesn't really cohesively fit together the way that they would want you to believe. And so even as a Christian, your odds of being together with your family are so much higher. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, if you gain exaltation and become your own god uh, of your own planet, <clears throat> well, you might have your wife, and then you're going to have, what, millions of other wives? And your kids are going to be off somewhere else. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, and it's it's certainly not in the scriptures. Uh, huh. Uh, well, is there is there any other... Uh, questions that you think would be uh, really good questions to to ask your Mormon friend or family member that might get them thinking? You know, there there really is, as you so often say in your podcast, there's no magic bullet. Um, there, there's there's nothing that you know. There's no scripture you can take into. There's no question you can ask them that's going to immediately you know just get through. It really is comes down to just listening to the Holy Spirit praying create like crazy for them and just loving them and listening to them and just continuing to show interest in what it is that they believe and in them as a person and keep on asking questions, taking them to the scriptures and keep following up. And over time, you know, the Lord only knows whether or not they're going to, to come and they're going to respond. He's going to be pursuing them. We know that for sure, but whether or not they're ever going to respond, that's between, completely between them and him, and we're just called to be vessels for his glory. Amen. Amen. Realize that this is not an overnight process. This is going to take a while. Speak to them as a friend. Love on them. Take uh, interest in their life uh, and, and pursue a friendship that will last for years. And... Yes, continue to ask these questions. Know when to ask and when to shut up. <laughs> and, you know, know when you've gone too far or you're approaching that line and, and preserve that friendship uh, and, and just keep praying for them. And hopefully over time they will come out. I mean, like we were talking before I hit, we, we really started recording was 
you know, when I was part of this hyper charismatic church, in many ways it did resemble a cult. And as I started finding problems with our beliefs, uh, I didn't leave overnight. It took me a good year and a half, maybe, maybe more. I, I really am not sure when that process started and how long it took. I just know that there was a long time there where I was, I was uncomfortable. And one thing built upon another until finally I reached a breaking point where I realized that I could not, I could not continue there. And praise God, my wife was on board. We were both at the same stage at the same time. Uh, but yeah, anyway, all that to say, this isn't something that happens overnight generally. It's usually something that could take a while. So uh, realize that you're in for the, the long term and pursue that friendship uh, above everything else in the sense that you want to have that, that, that microphone <laughs> to continue to speak questions into their lives over, over time so that you can uh, hopefully bring them out. Hopefully the Holy Spirit will act and, and lead them out. So, well, Jason, this has been awesome. This has been, uh, it's been once again an honor to have you. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, it's been, it's been an awesome pleasure. Thank you so much. It, it is interesting that when you've kind of set your heart to say, you know, hey, God, I want to get in the game. I want to be used. And, uh, and he will, um, and, you know, different ways that he's designed that person, he'll definitely put people in, in their path. Yeah, yeah, this is good stuff. I, I uh, Yeah, I might have to bring this back up again during the podcast because, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start uh, shaking a tambourine and running the aisles here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say something and I'm going to go, Glory! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you left that church, Michael. <laughs> I have those moments. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you know, listening to your your podcast, um, it, it sounds like you have a really interesting history in the different stages in which God's brought you through too. Um, you know, you, you had that, the Catholic experience and then you moved on and you got involved in some, you know, witchcraft related stuff. And mm -hmm. then you got, went on and you got, you know, called into ministry and ended up in a church that was in the hyper charismatic stuff. And so it sounds like you've been on quite a, a, a path that, Definitely seems like it's led you in a lot of ways to be able to you know, have a heart for a lot of different groups of uh, people that are involved in things that there's not a lot of Christians who even have a context for. Yeah, God has been so good. I, right, right. I, I mean, I was raised as a Catholic. Then I was convinced of evolution uh, at a very young age, though. I really didn't get too in-depth in it. But really quickly... I was convinced of a supernatural worldview and got sucked into the New Age and ESP, which led me right down the road into Wicca. And then it got even darker, got into some black magic. And then God pulled me out of there. Then I went down a, a, a road where I was involved with drugs and alcohol. Um, I don't talk about that too much on the podcast. Sooner or later, I'll bring it out. But um, I guess I'm a little embarrassed of it. Um, and then... 
God saved me out of that into a wild and crazy swinging from the chandeliers kind of <laughs> hyper charismatic church where people literally were running the aisles with tambourines and flags. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I was saved there though. I mean, I, I still got the gospel and uh, got saved. And then, yeah, as I read my Bible fairly quickly, it was like, boy, I, I guess I don't belong here. Um, mm. And neither does any thinking Christian, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. So, was that a hard situation? Because you probably felt the tension between wanting to almost tell everybody that was a part of that church that you knew, and but then at the same time, kind of feeling like you didn't want to, you wanted to kind of leave gracefully in a sense. Was there a tension there? Yes, it was horribly hard. Um, you know, there was a part of me that just wanted to get along and, and just just shut up and, and just not do anything, right? Just mm-hmm. keep going. And certainly that happened for probably a good year and a half where I kept finding problems and I would ignore them and just hope that things would pass over. And I t- sometimes I would talk to the pastor and things wouldn't, they just, they'd never get better. I got a couple small uh slash large fights with the pastor. The pastor hung up on me one day when we were talking about some things. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just, it got worse and worse and worse. And finally I realized we have to get out of here. And then it was like, okay, how do I do this? Do I do it gracefully? Do I go out with an explosion? Well, I chose to write a letter to the pastor mm. to explain to him how I felt and uh, hand it to him and then wait a day and then call him. Because I didn't want to leave anything out. Yeah. And um, he, Have was, he read it. Oh yeah, he. I've never read it on a podcast. No, um, I still have it somewhere. But yeah. he actually, the very following Sunday, devoted. This is how godly this congregation is. They devoted an entire Sunday to slandering me and my wife. He he brought that letter to the front. He read it out loud. Uh, he skipped parts whenever I mm-hmm. made an argument for my position. He would skip that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would read parts that he could attack. And then he would he would attack them. And by the end of it, everybody was convinced that Danielle and I were not saved. And that somehow they duped us this whole time. And this is what wolves in sheep's clothing look like. And, you know, now he's out there in the world coming against the spirit of God by, uh, uh, you know, saying these things and this is before I had a podcast. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of parallels between what you just said and, uh, what the, coming out of a call. Yeah. Um, because, um, I asked that question, I guess maybe on purpose is, um, because there is that tension for a lot of LVS, um, in Jehovah's witnesses or whatever, you know, because they form these relationships and they care about these people and as part of them, that also, there's also the bitterness, right? I mean, that you feel of kind of being duped and, um, you know, wasting, you know, section, from a certain point of view, wasting a certain section of your life kind of thing. And um, so there is the, those ten, that tension of feelings that goes on with these people and um, the angst. And so there's part of them that wants to just go back on a fasting testimony Sunday and go up front and start letting them have it. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> then <laughs> there's part of them that feels like, okay, you know, do I even want to go through like even putting my 
letter of resignation in and going through that process and um, do I, you know, do I want to really deal with um, bringing a separate family and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of tension there. And then also the other parallel is that the Mormon church particularly, um, they always take the approach when someone leaves, it's always because they couldn't cut it. They, they couldn't keep the commandments, and they realized that, and it was too hard for them, and they, they wanted to, uh, you know, live a sinful life, and uh, so they eventually just, you know, walked away from the church. And they always take that vantage point. You know, they, like you were saying, they'll completely skip over the stuff that maybe even people in the congregation have heard of reasons why they've left. They'll never address any of that stuff. It's always just about, like, okay, that person's evil, and even like you said, now they're an anti-Mormon, and so anything that they say it, it comes out of their mouth, you can't listen to or trust because it's coming from this agenda that you know that they hate the church and uh, and hate hate us. And so it, it was it's interesting to hear that because, and I know that you've kind of said that you kind of feel in a lot of ways that some of the tactics um, and things that uh, they they exercised in that church you were part of. Well, we're um, in a, in a lot of ways the same kind of things that uh, um, cults um, kind of do. So interesting, yeah. That that, <laughs> that is a, a very mature approach <laughs> that they decided to take. There were so many tactics that were very cult-like, and and when we left, we lost all of our friends. Nobody would talk to us, and it was almost like hitting a reset button in life. I mean, we had to start mm. over in the sense that we were just kind of off by ourselves. We were alone. Um, then I, <laughs> I really stirred things up after I lost all my friends. And you know what? This was probably not something that um, I would suggest to other people. This was probably not a kosher tactic. Mm. But I used the email list from our entire church. Mm. And I sent out a huge batch email to everybody warning them about Todd Bentley because I knew that everybody was going to a big Todd Bentley conference shortly after I left. And I warned them all. And that email went out and um, (laughs) the pastor responded with, I mean, it was, he was angry. And Mm -hmm. I suppose in some ways he probably had a good right to because that was an abuse of a email list. It really was. Yeah. But having said that, in my um, bad tactic there, God used it anyway, mm-hmm. and several more people left. Mm. Um, and then others started forwarding, forwarding that email all over the Internet. And so that email, <laughs> that email started getting passed around, and I was getting emails from people I'd never heard of or met that were thanking me for the warning. Um, and and now like 10 years later, um, a good portion of the people that were going to that church, probably about 30% of them, when I run into them on the street, they will talk to me now. Mm. And they almost always bring up that email as being a pivotal time. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I really was not, I I don't feel like that was a a kosher maneuver. It, It, it was an abuse of a trust that I was handed when I had access to that list. It was, it was, and I wasn't thinking, all I was thinking of is I have to warn these people Mm -hmm. and I did it. 
And um, even though I, I was probably in the wrong there, I think God used it. He used it in major ways. Mm. And um, <laughs> praise God, you know, I, I guess. I mean, he'll he'll take some things that we do that are kind of dirty rags. <laughs> yeah. And I know I'm taking that out of context a little bit, but he'll use our, our works when they're, you know, that I, I meant well. And uh, yeah. he took it and used it. So it, it was, um, praise God, you know, this whole experience was very painful, but I am who I am now because of that. And it, and it played a role in um, pushing me forward into the realm that I'm in now. Right. I started having this desire to try and, and put a dent in all the darkness that's out there and try to teach yeah. truth uh-huh. and help other people out of this, these different types of error and, here I am. I mean, praise God. And and you too. People like you are out there in in different areas that are experts in different areas leading people out of these these errors and, and into the truth. I mean, praise God. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. I, I kind of feel like you know, the more that I study in these areas, the less that I, I have confidence in, you know, my expertise. <laughs> Um, I, you know, when you first start out on a subject, you know, there comes a point where you kind of, you you almost do have that immature, um, kind of feeling like, yeah, I know this stuff and other people don't kind of thing. And, um, you go through that for a period of time and then you get to a point where God breaks through that and then matures you, um, to a point where, um, you don't feel like your way is the only right way to do things, and um, there's a whole lot of people that you feel like, oh wow, I have I know nothing about this compared to them, and um, or just in general that the humility that comes from uh, realizing, yeah, you know, the Lord's led me in this direction to study this and to, and to communicate this, and He's put it on my heart, but you know, He's really the one who's done all of it, and um, you know, I, I'm still completely dependent upon Him. And, uh, you know, he's still the only one who can do any of this stuff. Amen. Well, yeah, you jump into this stuff and some people will get a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it gets, it, and I did, I certainly did before I started the podcast. And even when I first, you know, actually started the podcast for the first year, you could hear that in some of the older teachings. There was a little bit of a chip, although I was already starting to calm down. Yeah. And... And uh, boy, gosh, just even in the last year, it's really, the Lord has really impressed upon my heart to just chill out, present the truth in love, and, mm. and, and give people piles of grace. You know, I was led astray. You were led astray. We were all led astray. Mm-hmm. And the guy with the chip on his shoulder, we didn't listen to him. We got mad at him. Right. And that person that looked at you with love in their face and yeah, just loving. They didn't bludgeon you with a brick of the gospel over the head in the sense that like they just <laughs> yeah. just slaughter everything you believe. Yeah. They just they would pick a couple things and they would ask questions and and get you kind of questioning. Oh wow, maybe there is a hole there. Yeah. And lovingly give you truth and then back away and let you think about it and let you save face. Give you an opportunity to save face in the whole thing. It's um. Mm. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was Jason Oaks 
peopleofthefreegift.com, his website, peopleofthefreegift.com. Again, the series we were talking about today is Reaching Out to Your Mormon Neighbor. You can find that on his website, peopleofthefreegift.com. Great resource. Uh, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to check it out. We barely scratched the surface on all that's in there. Uh, So, yes, the, the, the podcast today, the audio quality was fine. Everything was good. Next week, not so much. <laughs> and what's funny is just last week I mentioned that uh, I, I'll really make a strong effort to not have podcasts like that. But uh, the next podcast coming coming up here, Robert Lawrence, uh, he was in Mexico with a classroom filled with Calvary Chapel students. Okay, so this is a first for me, too. This was a a different style of a podcast. We had a classroom, or uh, in fact, I'm not even sure if it was a classroom, but a room full of Calvary Chapel students, uh, college students, and we talked on the subject of Roman Catholicism, but from the perspective of Mexico. In other words, uh, looking more at the local beliefs of Roman Catholicism, but from a, an angle coming from Mexico, uh, but also we're, we're talking about how to witness to Catholics. And so don't miss that. Yes, the audio is very poor. It is what it is. Um, I apologize about that. Something with uh, um, Skype communicating to a magic jack phone in mexico so it's going over the internet i think it's a 3g internet so not very fast Eh, not too excited about the audio the content was fantastic so don't miss that and with that guys well i love you guys and we'll see you next week